Hello, my name is David Castleman. I'm the founder and CEO of Ecoflix, the world's first not-for-profit streaming video service, where 100% of our subscription fees go directly to fund animal welfare NGOs around the world. Welcome to the Ecoflix podcast, where I have the opportunity to talk with some of the most inspiring people in the world. Every one of them share amazing insights into how we can all make a difference in the fight to save animals and our planet. I think they're amazing and fascinating. I hope you do too. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Greg McGillivray, who initiated the development of the three camera IMAX format. Using this groundbreaking equipment, he selected and produced 40 award-winning immersive IMAX films, including several amazing films about animals and the planet, which we're going to talk about. I hope you enjoy them as much as I do. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ecoflix podcast. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Greg McGillibray, the man who initiated the development of the three-camera IMAX format, including high-speed, slow-motion capabilities. Using this groundbreaking equipment, he selected and produced 40 award-winning immersive IMAX films, including several amazing films about animals and the planet. Along the way, he invented the industry's first lightweight and all-weather camera used to film on Mount Everest. And together with Jim Freeman, Greg formed the McGilvery Freeman Films, and their work has been honored at every level, including awards for Best TV and Film, two Academy Award nominations, a well-deserved Lifetime Achievement Award, and appropriately, his works have been inducted into the IMAX Hall of Fame. Greg, it's truly an honor and a pleasure to chat with you today. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting because most people love film, but not the way you love film. I mean, I understand you fell in love with it at an early age. How did How did you get involved? How did it captivate you? Well, I was always interested in art and my my mother was an artist and my dad built houses. So I loved the construction process um, from an early, early age. In fact, I, I helped dad build houses when I was started, started when I was six or seven. Um, and, you know, though I didn't really know what I was doing, I, I just loved that whole process of getting things ready and and then building things and then seeing how it all works out and changing it when it doesn't work out well and all the 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 fun creative aspects of of putting things together and making something better out of it um and that was you know i i first got a camera when i was 12 a still camera um my mom and dad gave me a little brownie plastic camera like <laughs> they got it for green stamps back when there were green stamps at your gas station and uh so they didn't have to spend any money on it and um from that i built a dark room i learned how to enlarge photographs and and i so i actually started taking still pictures of my friends surfing and then selling selling them you know for like 50 cents an enlargement, an eight by 10 of them surfing. Um, and then I'd get money there to buy more film. And and uh, so I 
then I guess about 14, I was given a camera for Christmas. It was a movie camera, a little brownie, uh, eight millimeter camera. And I started shooting movies and telling stories um, and editing and, and putting music to film. And then uh, they were pretty good. And, and uh, um, I guess it was about another year that I decided, you know, I like doing this and I can make money mowing lawns. And, and I had a, a two paper routes and I was babysitting for every little kid in the neighborhood. And uh, so I was making some money so I could buy film. And I started making a 16 millimeter surfing film um, as a hobby. And that was a joy as I, even though I couldn't drive yet, I'd hitchhike um, to places. And then I got my driver's license at 16 and, and I'd saved up 150 bucks so I could actually buy an old car um, so I could get myself to the surf and shoot movies. This is all in and Southern it, California. All in Southern California. So my first surfing film was the most weird surfing film ever made because it was all California surf. And my premise was that California surf is the coolest surf in the world. The style of California surfing was different than anywhere else because we were surfing glassy waves and glassy waves weren't available any, anywhere else in the world. So we didn't have wind. Um, and all this was, you know, kind of conjecture. I, I didn't know. <laughs> I, I really didn't know if our surfing was any better, but, but, you know, it sounded like a good idea for a theme right. and because uh, they needed a story. And, uh, and so I made my first film, but it took me four years to make it. Um, so it came out my freshman year of college. And uh, I went to UCSB and, you know, it's neat, in Santa Barbara. And uh, when it came out, all of a sudden, it made a lot of money because people liked it. Um, people would see it at one screening, then come back the next week and see it again. Wow. And uh that kind of shocked me. I I was you know even though the 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 ticket was only a dollar and quarter, um, you know I was all of a sudden paying off the film. It took me four thousand dollars to make it, um, and I paid that off uh, in the first like four months. And I went, gosh, this is really cool. My hobby is actually giving me money, and maybe this is better than a normal job. <laughs> and I asked my folks, what would you do? And they said, well, you really love doing this. Maybe you should just stick doing that rather than I was in, in school to become a, 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 a physics instructor or, or something to do with science. Um, I loved physics and I love math. And so anyway, I stuck with it dropped out of school my second year made another film and it, it kept going after that i did go back to college for one uh semester and then jim freeman and i teamed up and we we thought we had the best idea to make a film ever um it it wasn't the best idea ever but it was a really great movie that we made together called free and easy and uh uh and that just set our trajectory off and 
and and Freeman was such a great person, but also a great salesman. He he loved people. He was creative, a wonderful filmmaker, but um, also he had more energy than I, I. I mean, I I know how to talk to people now, and and but back then I was shy and and you know just happy to make my own film my own way and and do my own thing. But Freeman kind of pushed us out into the world because he, he his idea was, hey, I can ask anyone anything. You know, I'll call up the president of the United States and tell him to make a film. And <laughs> that was his idea. And, you know, he he was that wonderful guy that was a perfect blend between what I did and what he did and our skills I love to say it was like one and one equaling three. Um, it sounds so elementary, but right. it really was true. The synergy of our effort together, um, like that first film that we made together, um, it was, you know, 10 times better than anything that we'd done on our own. Synergy and it, is like that. Yeah. You know, and it was, it was probably because, um, you know, here we were young and, and, and we'd, we'd been nowhere in the world and we were seeing these wonderful new places. Um, our first film together, we shot in South America for six months. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, so we were in a foreign place that very few people back then had been to. This is almost 60 years ago. Uh, in fact, it was 60 years ago. And you end up thinking, okay, um, you know, what are we going to do next for our story? And, and the stories just came to us um, through all kinds of trials and tribulations that we ran into, you know, we, we borrowed a Jeep from a guy at one point and, and all of a sudden the Jeep was underwater and, and you know, the tide had come into this one place. And, and so we had a sequence uh, out of, you know, rescuing Jeep out of the water <laughs> with tractors and other things that that were you know just people helping and so you, you got these stories and all the, the 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 problems that you run into when when you're traveling the world and not knowing what you're doing and um and people help you and that was partly the story of free and easy was was how wonderful the world is and and what a beautiful place it is and our yeah. photography was was getting to be so good in terms of showing beauty that uh, the film really struck a new chord with audience members. Uh, it uh, it was it was so beautiful. In fact, when my wife came back from her highfalutin college, she went to an Ivy League school, and uh, she said, "Oh my God, I can't believe how gorgeous that film is." and how meaningful it is. And I said, really, you know, I was kind of blown away that <laughs> this intellectual girl was really moved by um, something that I had done. And, uh, and so it was a, it was, kind of, it was very cool being able to work with Jim and, you know, share the experience of, of seeing the world early for the first time, seeing, seeing how wonderful people are. Yeah, and so that was that was our first adventure together, and that's how I started out. 
You know, that's, that's why I'm still energetic about making movies. I, I love it. It's a hobby. <laughs> yeah, really. And uh, you know what they say, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And it sounds like that's been true for you for many, many decades. Yeah, I love that statement. And it is true. Yeah. So you worked, uh, I understand, with Stanley Kubrick on The Shining. So you had some pretty lofty experience along the way. Can you share any of those kind of formative uh, parts of your career? Yeah, you know, the the after Jim and I um, did a number of surfing films, two or three, um, we decided, okay, we've done all we can do with surfing. And so let's turn to Hollywood where there there will be bigger challenges because um, we, you know, financially, we were pretty well set with with our surfing films, creating a, a foundation for our company. Um, you know, we 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 bought property down here in Laguna. So we were financially um, not having to pay for rent and um, all kinds of other expenses. Mm. Um and and that investment turned out to be better than we ever expected. Yeah. Um, and and uh, and so we decided, okay, let's try our hand at Hollywood. Um, and so Jim, because he loved people and he loved driving, he went to Hollywood almost twice a week, maybe three times a week. Um, and we'd worked at one films down here in Laguna, and then he'd be up there maybe for two or three days out of the week, um, basically selling, basically meeting people, basically showing what we could do with cameras and beautiful lighting and great locations and action sequences. And so we did a number, like maybe 10 or 20 um, special sequences for different feature films um, with all the different studios, including you know, shooting uh, Jim shot like half of Jonathan Livingston Siegel, the Paramount movie um, based on the book. Um, and and uh, the opening sequence of the towering Inferno, which was the big film one year. Um, so anyway, the, we, we were working on a film in Greece about hang gliding. It's called sky riders and it was with james coburn and 20th century fox the studio that was financing that film hired all of the other crew members and some of the actors from england um, they were closer to greece but also they were cheaper than than the u.s workers and you know by a little bit and uh, and my assistant director, I was directing the second unit, all the action footage, which is about half of the movie. And uh, my assistant director was Stanley Kubrick's assistant director. And this guy who was very knowledgeable and, you know, spoke with a very sophisticated English accent and was a wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, Brian Cook was his name or is his name. He's, he's still working a little bit. Um, but he had just finished Barry Lyndon with Kubrick, which was an incredibly gorgeous film. And, and Brian had worked with Kubrick for 
like maybe two and a half years on that project. Um, it, it was, it's one of the most beautiful films ever produced. Um, but he'd also worked on other Kubrick films before that. Um, so he's sort of like this, the, 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 the group of Kubrick workers who were willing to work for less money, but they knew that the job would last forever <laughs> and, and the credit would be good on their resume. And um, he said, you know, after, after we finished the shoot in Greece, which a two month shoot, um, Brian said, you know what? The two of you have to work with Kubrick. Um, you, you're just as crazy about film as he is. And, and you work harder than anyone that, that I've ever seen, Brian said, uh, except for Kubrick. He says, you know, you work seven days a week, 20 hours a day. I don't know when you guys sleep. And I, you know, of course, you're saying goodbye to everyone. And, and, and I thought, OK, that'll never happen. But but Brian, um, about a year later, called up and said, you know, Kubrick wants to talk to you. And I went, oh, that's interesting. And sure enough, you know, they 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 hired me and, and Jim had just died from a helicopter crash and um you know a tragic moment for all of us and um and so getting a, a job with this guy who was my favorite director favorite filmmaker of all filmmakers of all time um was such a heady experience and and such a delight particularly at that moment where um, though he'd worked on other films, you know, after Jim had died, um, still working with Kubrick at that particular moment was especially significant, especially therapeutic and, and helpful. And, um, and so we, we shot all the second unit and, and directed all the second unit, uh, footage, um, for The Shining. And uh, still today, um, it's probably our biggest credit. You know, the the Shining is still here's Johnny. <laughs> yeah, it's still looked at as being one of the three most scary movies of all time. Hmm. And you know, by by polling, and every Halloween, it's trouted out with the theaters, and they're shown again. <laughs> so you know, get scared again, and. And uh, but working on it was awesome because, you know, I talked to Kubrick at least once a week on the phone and I went over there twice to be with them in London. So I got to know and 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 meet uh, Nicholson and, and Shelley Duvall and the rest of the crew, Scatman Crothers and and John Alcott, the cinematographer who I admired so much. And of course, I stayed with Brian when I went over there. And and he would introduce me to every, you know, person that worked in film uh, over in, in London. And and so it was a real joy, you know, because um, I was kind of having to come out of my shell. Now, I had to be the pitch man for our films, for our company. And uh, uh, so I was learning how to talk to people, which was a good thing. And, uh, and, and Brian helped me out an awful lot. 
Um, so, and then Kubrick became a good friend. You know, he, I trusted him. He trusted me. Um, you know, it, it, uh, the relationship went on for, uh, a year of shooting. And then, um, when he was making full metal jacket, um, you know, a couple maybe three years later, he wanted me to work with him on that. And unfortunately I had contracts with two other companies that I couldn't get out of. And, you know, and I kept trying to, I knew that Kubrick's show would be delayed a little bit. So I kept trying to make a, make it work but it just never never worked so we weren't able to work together on that film but um and and unfortunately you never never got anyone else to work on it with him so the second unit work was was uh non-existent basically mm. but um so you ended up you know continuing to correspond over the years and i, I sent him christmas cards and he back back to me every year and so when he died you know it was really painful and and hard to deal with um you know he, he died minutes after finishing eyes wide shut and um you know it just it's tra tragic that you lose people like this with so much skill and yeah. and creativity but the, the experience for me um was was just a a highlight of my life and fantastic yeah yeah so let me let me shift if i can to imax because it, yeah it's many have said the secret of your success with imax is traceable to the decision to use the <laughs> placement of the cameras to bring the viewer visually into the action can you can you talk a little bit about your thinking as to how you develop that concept well, it really started uh, that whole concept of putting the audience into the experience. Um, started with the surfing films. Um, my specialty was riding a wave while holding a camera. That's and these were special. <laughs> and, and, you know, these were kind of cumbersome 16 millimeter cameras. And, but, but I was a good surfer. And so I could actually. I perfected a way that I could paddle on my board, a long board, not a short board, with the camera up near the nose of the board with kind of lightweight suction cups that held it there while I was paddling for the wave. And then I could slide it off the board and pick it up as, as I, when I stood up, I would then grab the board, get, grab the camera and I could hold it. And I was pretty good, or I got better and good at aiming the camera without looking through it, because it's impossible to put it up. You, you wipe out in three seconds if you put it up to your eye. Yeah, right. Because there's, you know, you have to react. There's a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you're riding a wave, everything's moving, you know, yeah, and so. and if you've got to be ready for anything to happen at every second, and so. Um, but I got good at doing that. And, um, and so, and, and those moments in our films were probably some of the most captivating, you know, we did a lot of other things with aerial work and with, right. with slow motion and with other specialized photography. Right. But, but, um, 
riding the wave while while surfing and following someone um you know gave gave the audience that sensation that they were riding the wave yeah so that carried over in a beautiful way to making IMAX films yeah like you you mentioned you carried it over to helicopters and <laughs> airplanes and surfing but skiing also and every one of those you have these giant IMAX 70 millimeter film and 12 channel stereo it's quite an immersive experience yeah and that's what I love about it you know Jim, when Jim and I made the film to fly which which we finished just before Jim was killed um it was you know we we tried all our tricks with that with that film and the film still plays today 50 years later at the air and space museum in washington dc and is still one of the top five imax films of all time and uh it it uh, uh you know it puts you in the aspect of flight um which the the director of the Air and Space Museum told Jim and I, sat us down before we made the move, and he said, I don't need history. I don't need facts with this film. I don't need to know about the Wright brothers. I need to give the audience the sensation and the joy of flying. And it was really cool this this is the astronaut uh, uh mike collins who was the director of the museum at that time and you know six years late for six years earlier he'd he'd circled the moon waiting for neil armstrong and buzz aldrin to get back to him so they could come home the cool thing about mike was that he was a really good leader and director and he said, look, one thing, give me that experience, that feeling of flying. And I said, I think we know how to do that because we've done these surfing films and we've put the audience on a board and we put them in the action. And he goes, okay, go do it. Don't think about anything else except giving me that experience. And so with helicopters and cameras on airplanes, like you said, we were able to do that with To Fly. And and that's why it or one of the reasons why it became such a, a massive success and and helped the IMAX company build more theaters. That was the fourth theater ever built of IMAX. And now there's seventeen hundred theaters and, and they really. Yeah, it shows you that, that you know, I mean, Oppenheimer, which is so beautiful on that giant screen, um, especially when seeing it in film, um, which they're showing it in film at, at about 30 locations uh, where they've rolled the old IMAX film projector back into position, oiled it up, tested it for three to four days before and before they got it to run right and because uh, it hasn't been used for you know about at some locations like an Irvine uh, spectrum where it is showing in film the Oppenheimer film 
it uh, that film projector hasn't been used in in at least seven years, and uh, it's been sitting there, ready to use. But but they've been shooting, you know, showing the films digitally uh, since then. Well, you know, so anyway, that yeah. experience though with film is so mesmerizing. You well, feel like you're there. And it was started then, but I mean, they're still trying to copy it, even with the latest Top Gun Maverick film, they're trying to use those principles and those concepts for for the same benefit, which is... It'll never go away. You know, putting the audience in the action, doing a great action sequence. It's still our specialty um, with all of our films. And, you, you know, if it's really what makes movie making and movie going uh, a complete joy you know it's it's Absolutely. it's hard to do well, you, you know you've been doing it you've been doing one imax film a year for a <laughs> long time how difficult has that been to keep up it's been hard um we com committed to our theaters um you know about 30 years ago that we produce 10 films in 10 years and they gasped they they didn't believe us actually yeah and they, they said well how are you going to do that you know it sounds like too much work sounds like too much you know finding the money you know to make these movies so forth and i said nope we're going to do it we're going to find ways to do it and that's our challenge you just show them and they said okay that's the deal we will show them you go make them <laughs> and how do you select the new ones new mountains to climb so to speak yeah it's it's always an interesting process because sometimes people walk through the door and say hey i need a movie made about this subject <laughs> and here's all the money and the other times you know my son and daughter and i say you know hey we got to make a movie about this you know let's say about you know the national parks how are we going to do that and and we have to go out and find the money so you, you know you it's it's either of those ways to do it um you know the guy walking in the front door is the easy way <laughs> but, yeah i'd say but but you know sometimes the guy coming in the front door is a pill and hard to work with and so that doesn't you know, work out great. Um, and, and so you, you don't do the movie, but the, the usual thing, in fact, we've been really lucky. Our clients have been a plus, you know, they, I can't believe how good they've been. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's really wonderful to see. Um, I, I, I you know, I, I, I think that I've really been given the lucky straw and the, uh, my life has been so fortunate in terms of of running into nice people, you know, including including Kubrick and and of course Jim and and uh, you know my wife Barbara is is such a key to that. Uh, and now the kids are running the business, and they're doing a better job than I ever thought I could do. <laughs> um, they're making it even better, and and they're pulling in jobs that are. You know, wonderful films that um, 
in new techniques. You know, uh, this one project that we just completed, it's like seeing one film on a screen that's 10 IMAX screens married together all the way around you in a room. And these are LED screens that are 50 feet high and 350 feet in circumference. And it's sharper than IMAX. Wow. And brighter and more contrasty. And so it feels more like real life than either an IMAX. Yeah. And so it'd be like, you know, seeing 10 Oppenheimer screens all around you. And this yeah. is in in uh, at, a, at a facility uh, in the Middle East. But um, they're building these facilities with LED screens. There's a new one that's opening at a place called The Sphere in Las Vegas. And there'll be others that follow. And this is kind of a new specialty for our company right. where... Um where we'll have even bigger screens to fill with wow. that experience. You know, you'll, you'll give an audience the feeling of, the, of being there and doing it um, or the feeling of characters and character development and stories that you'll feel like you, you know, these people yeah. intimately because yeah. you're, you can, you can see their eyes so clearly, right. You know, you, you know, that they're, they're your friend, you know, uh, it's important, and uh, at Ecoflix, we have seen the power of film to affect change. And beyond entertainment, I'm wondering if you use or see IMAX as a vehicle to educate and inspire people to save animals and the planet, like we hope to do. Absolutely, a hundred percent. You know the the thing that's so powerful with IMAX, and we've proven this. Uh, over the last 30 years, over and over. And, and a lot of our films are financed by foundations that require you to do um, both pre-screening and post-screening surveys to see what people knew when they came to the film, <laughs> what they knew about the subject before, and then what they know about it and how they were inspired after. Absolutely. And it's off the charts it's it's actually equal or better <clears throat> than a teacher in a classroom you know our retention is so high because when people experience something real and they think that they're there they remember it it's a first-hand experience yeah. um it's like visiting the grand canyon you can't explain that to others yeah. But if you see it in IMAX, that's almost as memorable. Yeah. And and uh, so we found that that our films do move children and adults to action, to move move them to love and and respect places, and want to save those places. Yeah. So let me and, let me hop in my chair here, which I created in honor of uh, your your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my IMAX chair and ready to go. I want to walk through some of your films about animals and the planet to talk about some of the challenges and things you had to overcome. And I guess it started like in 1995, The Living Sea. That's one of the uh, really well-known. And you were talking about their oceanographers studying humpback whales and jellyfish and 
deep sea life. And it also talked about the Central Pacific uh, islands of Palau and the beauty there. Tell me about some of those, the challenges of making a film like that in 1995. You know, that was um, right when not there, there'd been one film about underwater that'd been done by Graham Ferguson before that in IMAX. And so there was an underwater housing for the big IMAX camera that we could borrow or rent. But I knew that, okay, we need to make this film because the oceans are becoming more polluted by various things like plastics. Um, the runoff from land is polluting the ocean with other things um, like chemicals and, and detergents and, and fertilizers. Um, but also we're overfishing. So how are we going to tell these stories? And I knew that, you know, I could use this format, IMAX. Um, I had a hard time finding the funding to make this film, but we partnered with one place um, that needed a, needed a film uh, called Nauticus in North Norfolk, Virginia. The film is still playing there in a different format in just regular 70 millimeter five perf. Uh, so it's just uh, a little bit smaller screen, but the rest of the funding I couldn't get. And so I said, okay, I'm going to put up money to make this movie. I'll, I'll put, um, I think it was a million and a half to 2 million into the film to combine with the other 2 million that came from Nauticus and we can shoot this movie that's all about the ocean. And I have as long as I want to make it because um, Nauticus doesn't need it for another three years. And, and the ocean's your sweet spot. Yeah. And so I tried to figure out the best, most captivating moments where the audience could be in there and experience the ocean. So we photographed the, the uh, uh, Coast Guard rescue boat training area up in Oregon with cameras mounted on the boat and cameras above the boat in helicopters. And we got a day with 12 to 15 foot surf. And so it was really exciting. So that was a, a wonderful experience moment. Uh, and then I got a wonderful surfing sequence that we shot at Sunset Beach in Hawaii. Um, and it, it took us about three weeks to shoot that. Um, but I, we shot it from the helicopter, which really hadn't been done before. Um, you know, it's it. We did a little bit of that in Big Wednesday, but we hadn't really done it in IMAX. Or I mean, that's kind of your thing, doing things that nobody's ever done before. Yeah, it, it's it's what the audience needs. You know, they they don't want to see the same thing over and over. They want to see new stuff. Yeah, give me give me something I haven't seen. Yeah, it, that's just human nature. Well, we shift to that in '97. You did Amazon which was really a magnificent journey. You're talking about discovering the wonders of that immense river and looking into the indigenous people and the amazing biodiversity. And of course, the healing powers of the region's plants that have been now part of the medical discoveries of generations. 
How did how did that trip come about? That sounds like a tough journey. Well, it was that that was basically a, a partnership with Keith Merrill, um, an, another filmmaker who I admire and and really love working with, and he came up with that idea and did the film, and then we distributed it and helped him do it, um, and and then we we own the film, but the basically you end up with that great subject and you know he he went and lived with the indigenous tribes and in the rainforest and shot great sequences of of the, the animal life there and um you know it's all about saving the environment there you know don't cut down those trees <laughs> yeah. to to grow cattle and it is don't, a huge challenge to this day i mean it was actually way ahead of the the world to pick up the nature of the problem back then but now it's a dire emergency and oh, yeah. ecoflix is partnering with amazon watch and artists for amazonia and we're very concerned about it along with millions of people yeah yeah no kidding and let me shift you to another one 2000 uh you did dolphins and mm -hmm. uh, this is some pretty rare footage you're getting close-up behaviors and communication activities. And uh, dolphins have this remarkable way to fish uh, using herding the, the prey species. And it's a, a pretty unique look at the lives of dolphins and their intelligence. What what drove you there? I know you must have surfed with a million dolphins and love them. <laughs> Is that, was that behind that one? Yeah, well, every surfer loves dolphins, you know, it one thing it means that there not, aren't not very many sharks around exactly but but also it means that you know here we are out in the out in the ocean you know feeling its beauty and and wonder right. um we're with our feet dangling in the water and dolphins cruising by yeah it's just enjoying life but you know you end up um in terms of that film what our goal was really it's important to understand that the normal person doesn't think about the ocean. It just is a flat, you know, like here I am at the ocean. I'll show you today, <laughs> flat day, you know, here at Laguna, there's, you know, about 10 people out at Thalia street waiting for waves. Um, and about 10 other people waiting for waves to come in so they can enjoy the 74 degree water. The, they don't think about what's underneath. They, when they think about the fish underneath, they think about eating those fish. In order for people to want to save dolphins, and at that particular time, there was the big issue of, you know, the tuna fishermen catching too many dolphins as bycatch. Ooh. And so the dolphin population was being reduced. And so we wanted to make that point. But in order to make that point, you have to prove that that animal is worth saving, that you just don't eat it. <laughs> you just don't kill it because you want to get to the food that it hangs out with. Um, so you have to get people to fall in love with it. To get people to fall in love with anything, they have to know that it's intelligent, just like the, the octopus teacher movie did 
a, a year or two ago. Amazing, yeah. Got people to fall in love with octopus. Now, fewer people are earning octopus at restaurants. What we had to do is get people to fall in love with dolphins. And so we, we needed to show how intelligent they are. And they're amazing. Yeah, um, you know, and you're following, you, you were not that long after Heaven Can Wait, when Warren <laughs> Beatty was talking about, won't you pay a nickel more to save a fish who can talk, that kind of stuff. So there yeah. was already a movement on the stopping fishing and no nets that were killing dolphins. So Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, the wave of, of understanding the importance of our ecosystem everywhere was beginning. You know, it, it began in 1970 with Earth Day and all that and, and all the environmental laws, the 28 environmental laws that will, were passed um, in the early 70s. That's what began it. And then the EPA began at that particular moment. But really... The awareness of the American population and other populations around the world was just beginning then, too. And when we made this film, Dolphins, in, in you know, 98, 99, and 2000, came out in 2000, um, that was our goal. Okay, how do you get people to fall in love with oceans, fall in love with dolphins, so yeah. that they'll want to protect these things. And to this they, day, it's still a problem. I mean, the vaquita down in Mexico is nearly extinct. Uh, the smallest dolphin. It's a uh, yeah, yeah. And it, issue. but thankfully, the the fishermen who are catching tuna with with purse saner nets, um, they they back off and they let the dolphins escape, you know, over the ropes um, and nets. Uh, you if know, because there. their dolphins are all on the surface, um, and they they have observers on a lot of those boats. Yeah, it's uh, better. It's the better. other thing that's good, you know, because I'm a positive person, I'm an optimist. I think people once they understand the importance of what they do and and, and regulations, they will do the right thing. Um, they just have to understand it. Yeah, I the, hope the you're right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. here's I mean, a follow-up to that, because in 2013, you released Coral Reef Adventure, and there you're in the South Pacific again, and now you're filming the world's most beautiful and then endangered corals. And as I understand it, you broke some records, IMAX cameras. You took it down 370 feet, the deepest ocean reef on film, and um, now we're talking about corals that are bleached to the point where you went back to that same spot. You probably wouldn't find anything there. It's, yeah. Yeah. You were and, I assume, trying to protect coral in 2013. That, the motivation was a coral bleaching event uh, um, just before that yep. that had wiped out um, and, and no one knew what bleaching was up until that moment. Um where it's it's where the 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 corals which look rosy and beautiful and full of life um, because they're built by these uh, beautiful polyps that that excrete calcium and such and and build these coral reefs um hard coral they will disappear they'll leave that structure that house the acid in the water yeah, it, both with acid and and with with uh, with water temperature rise, uh, 
Right. And and so the coral turns from a rosy, you know, pink color to a white, absolutely white. It looks like a graveyard. Yeah. And yeah. so oh. it's a depressing thing. And Very and depressing. so when that happened, that was not another one of those films that I decided, okay, this is a need. We need to get this message out there. Let's finance this film. We'll try to get other partners, but Yay. let's finance it on our own. Well, and that's and it it, yeah. it worked. It it showed at the uh, climate summit in South Africa, at the IMAX theater in Cape Town, uh, and all the delegates came. <laughs> thankfully, when they were in Cape Town, they came to that summit and came to the IMAX. We gave them free tickets. And um, and so a lot of people saw it, you know, hundreds of thousands of people saw it um, there and elsewhere. But also it was shown with lectures by scientists and oceanographers and marine biologists uh, all around the world in, in um, probably 250 theaters. And uh, and so for three or four years, it it really did move the needle in terms of awareness of what climate issues were in terms of heating, but also what damage could be done to coral reefs, which are so vital to so many communities in the world. Yeah, it's just so important that you've been doing this. In 2015, you did a film, Humpback Whales, looking into Alaska, Hawaii, Tonga, talking about how whales communicate and sing and how they care <laughs> for their young and migrate you know 10,000 miles every year I mean amazing stuff and again were you motivated to help the humpback whales when you made that film yeah you know the the the, the film the sequence that I love so much and we, it was just a complete fluke and a wonder that we got Ooh, this a little film. whale joke there a complete fluke yeah yeah um thanks for pointing that out I'm not that clever <laughs> <laughs> The uh, uh, the last sequence in the film, so we end with man trying to help the humpback. And it was the sequence on Noah uh, and their whale rescue program. And where uh, off off Kauai or off uh, Maui, uh, that one year when we were filming an animal, one of the one of the humpback mothers was caught with a net around her tail and if that net remained on her tail she'd die you know she because she, she couldn't dive she couldn't get food she couldn't do this and that and breathe after a while yep and so um the the rescue group that's financed by NOAA, part of our national government um knew about the whale we were helping locate the whale and track the whale with our helicopters and they ended up freeing that whale with a with a technique that they've been perfecting over the years and that sequence was so heartfelt and wonderful and we got great action footage um you know we we, we filmed the real thing it was hap as it was happening and then we went back the year later and filmed close-ups of Ed Lyman, who is the, the the main marine biologist who is conducting this group, and uh, and his team of young volunteers who um, really, you know, a lot of ways they risked their life and their 
they're they're opportunities they're, they're on call 24 hours a day so if there's a whale entanglement anywhere in maui they're out there they're out yeah. there in their boat they're trying to get that whale to safety and and so that it's free and so uh, so it's such a great great sequence to go okay we love these animals we actually banned the killing of them uh, decades ago and now they're coming back and it's that one happy story in the ecosystem where there's a positive ending where you know we've saved these animals from extinction not yeah. just you know minor catch a few and you know like octopus these animals were on their way out they yeah. they, they were down in fact the, the the population in Fiji disappeared completely. This is it true went away. with a number of species, uh, particularly whales. And it's so important. I, I agree with you totally. The power of film is often under under resourced and under appreciated. Let me take you to one more film. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then I'll I don't want to take too much of your time today. This was 2019. Great bear rainforests. You filming this time on Canada's remote Pacific coast. I mean, you must have a frequent flyer ticket uh, available whenever you need one because you're all over the place. But this is taking us, as it's referred to, the land of the grizzlies and the coastal wolves and sea otters and the all-white spirit bear. So this is the rarest bear on earth. This is an unknown wilderness, really, much like the oceans are unknown. Uh, again, what seems to attract you, all these firsts, which is just fantastic. And it's the last intact temperate rainforest in the world, which is, of course, protected by indigenous people, certainly not people that live in cities where all we do is destroy the planet. It's it's just hard to take for me, but I'll get off my soapbox for a moment. <laughs> Tell me about Great Bear Rainforest. Well, it's one of those wonders kind of like Amazon where the filmmakers came to us and they said, look, we've got this great idea. I'd never heard of that, that this rainforest, um, which is above Vancouver by, you know, 70 or 80 miles. And, and they told us about it. And I said, okay, that's a great IMAX film. You guys have to do this. And so we helped them uh, in a, in a minor fashion, make the film but we distributed the film and marketed it and got it out to the world uh, and spread the message of what it, what it says. Um, so this is one of the nice things about being in a small industry like the IMAX industry and being kind of the top dog, you know, you end up getting these people who are well-meaning and they, they have partners that are well-meaning and they want you to help them get their film out there to the most people possible. And we've got, um, you know, the best distribution company in the IMAX world. And we think that we might have the best production company too, but, but definitely we've got the best distribution company. You end up then being able to fit into our schedule of releasing and with our relationships with these 250 IMAX theaters worldwide, we can make a difference. We can yeah. bring these subjects like the great bear and the spirit bear, which is a albino bear 
um, it's a mutation that's that's natural, and uh, and this animal is like amazing, and the footage they got is incredible. I mean, it's um, it's amazing footage. There's one scene where the mama bear, you know, has two cubs, and she's there. The three the three of them are drinking from this little beautiful waterfall and another big grizzly bear comes up on them and tries to eat the two cubs mm. and the mom has to fight this this big bear away and it's just one of those sequences where you go how did you ever get that you know yeah. <laughs> did you dress up in animal costumes and <laughs> you know well if you did you'd probably gotten eaten <laughs> yeah you know, and it's it's uh, showing people the natural world and those emotional contexts, like a mother bear, you know, looking out for its young, um, is so powerful to people because uh, it's so human. Yeah, they they feel like feel like human beings, and and uh, so you 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 want to protect them. You want to save them from from pollution and from everything else that can go wrong well as and you, habit, habitat loss is the big thing up there it's um, the big thing everywhere <laughs> it's un, so unfortunate i mean we founded ecoflix for that sole purpose to yeah. create and distribute films dedicated to saving animals and the planet and what you've done is so incredible i i mean we could go on and on but I really want to thank you for all you've done, aside from just all the amazing programming you've created. It's just really fantastic. And I, again, thank you so much for taking the time today to share it with our audience. Well, it's been a pleasure, you know, and it and it's the thing that I'm so delighted about is that my son and daughter um, are going to carry this on for, you know, the next 60 years and and so it'll continue on and um it's i think it has a part in communicating the value of nature to everyone worldwide doesn't get any better than that when your family carries on your tradition that's such a wonderful thing it really is it is it's so heartfelt yeah greg thank you so much oh you're so welcome thank you for doing what you do Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please share it with your family and friends who want to join with us to truly make a difference. Remember, think big, start small, but act now. Thank you.